All right, Flatirons, good morning. I'm happy to see you today. I'm very happy that you're here for week two of this series on faith that we've called Send It. All right, in case you're unfamiliar with the term send it, here's what it means. It's what you say when you're stepping into the point of no return. All right, so if you're on an airplane, you're about to jump out of that airplane with a parachute on your back, or, or you're about to tip the nose of your snowboard down a black diamond, you are about to send it. And in the same way, when you're, when you're on that edge of taking another step of faith or your first step of faith in Jesus, same thing, you're about to send it. Right? You're entering into a point of no return. There's no turning back, and it might feel risky at first, and so you've got to place all of your, your trust and your faith in the idea that with Jesus, he's going to help you land on your two feet somehow, right? And, and last weekend, Jim kicked this series off, and he talked about, like, what does faith in Jesus specifically look like? And in case you missed last weekend or you for, forgot, that kind of faith in Jesus is simply confidence that God is who he says he is and assurance that he's going to keep every single promise he ever made to us. That's what faith in, in Jesus looks like. But after we understand faith in Jesus, the very next logical question, in my mind at least, is what does it look like to take a step of faith? Right? Like, like how, how does this confidence and assurance that I now have, how does that faith play out through my actions? And, and today I want to jump in, I want to answer that, that question together because 99.9% of the time, a, state, a step of faith always takes the same exact thing. All right, but the best way for me to explain what that thing is and what a step of faith looks like is to tell you two stories, right? One story from the Bible and one story from my own life. And, and so let's go full send right now. Let's not waste any time and let's jump into our first story. All right, first story is from the Bible. It's about a man named Naaman who took a step of faith. If, if you're the kind of person you like to follow along in your Bible or on your phone or whatever, we're in the Old Testament in the book of 2 Kings chapter 5, verse 1, and the story starts like this. Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram, and he was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram, and he was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. All right, let me kind of set up our, our context here for us right now. Okay, you got this guy, his name is Naaman, he, he's the supreme commander of a nation called Aram, and he's just a top dog. Right, he has courageously stacked a bunch of W's for the nation of Aram. And so because of that, Na Naaman is highly respected. He's highly esteemed. He's highly accomplished. And people listen to him. And people love him. Pro probably the best equivalent in modern day to like the level of fame and respectability uh, that, that Naaman had is tech giants. All right, he's, he's a household name, and for better or worse, people listen to him, all right, because he's like the Elon Musk or the Bill Gates or the Jeff Bezos of his era, all right? But at the same time, we learn that Naaman had leprosy, and leprosy is this disease that it will eventually eat away at all of your flesh until you die, and there was no cure for it, and it was highly contagious. And so back in Naaman's day, if you catch leprosy, you become publicly ostracized until the day that it inevitably kills you. All right, so, so here's our context for the story. We've got Naaman. He's highly respected. He's a household name. He's the military leader of the nation of Aram, but at the same time, he can't do his job. 
And the thing that he has looked to for all of his worth and all of his respect and all of his value is slipping out of his fingers because he is wearing the social and physical death sentence of leprosy. In short, Naaman is a highly respected man who has made a name for himself, but he's also desperate right now. All right, next verse says, now bands from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. And, and one day she says to her mistress, she goes, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, like this prophet would cure Naaman of his leprosy. All right, one more quick timeout for, for a quick history and geography lesson here, all right? So Israel is God's nation. This is the nation where all of God's people live and where all of God's people worship. And on the western border of Israel is the Mediterranean Sea. And then you can see over here that on the eastern border is the kingdom of Aram. That's where Naaman is commander. And in a different book of the Bible, we learn that right before this moment that we're talking about together right now, we learn that Aram invaded Israel. Israel fought back strongly, pushed the Arameans out of Israel, and then started to conquer Aram until the king of Aram humiliatingly begged for a peace treaty with Israel, which Israel then greenlit. I know, I know that sounds like a totally random ancient history lesson. Here's the point. Even though Naaman has been a super successful warrior, Israel has been one of the like nuts that he just can't crack, right? Like Israel is always going to be this humiliating reminder of one of Aram's few defeats. Now, Ever since that defeat, and even though there's a peace treaty, there's still border skirmishes between Aram and Israel because they're mortal enemies. And in one of those skirmishes, as disgusting as it is, Naaman is awarded one of the spoils of war. He's awarded a brand new Israelite slave to serve his wife. And this new slave of his, she makes this crazy suggestion. What she says is that Naaman should go visit the prophet of Israel and ask to be healed of leprosy. And with all the history and all that, here's what I'm trying to get us to grasp. I'm trying to get us to grasp that that would have been absolutely humiliating for Naaman. Because the suggestion is for Naaman to walk into Israel, the one nation that he wasn't strong enough to conquer, and then beg for Israel's prophet to heal him of one of the few diseases that everyone at that time knew was incurable. Right? The suggestion is that Naaman walks into Israel as a literal loser and then asks the prophet to do something that is literally impossible. This is a sucker punch to Naaman's pride and Naaman's ego. But remember, Naaman is desperate. He's desperate to be healed. And so he figures to himself, he's like, what else do I have to lose? And so he packs his bags and he takes off for Israel. But when he gets to the front door of the prophet, things get worse for his pride and his ego. Look at this. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and he stopped at the door of Elisha's house, but Elisha doesn't even go outside. Instead, Elisha sends a messenger to say to Naaman, hey, go wash yourself seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. 
All right, so Elisha is the prophet that Naaman has been looking for, and Elisha is also a pretty big deal, just like Naaman is, at least in the nation of Israel. Like, not only is Elisha the successor for one of Israel's greatest prophets, but we're also told that he's literally twice as powerful as the prophet that he took over for, and God has been doing this like crazy, amazing stuff through Elisha. And on top of all of that, Elisha is a total wild card. Totally unpredictable. In fact, a few chapters before this story, there's a great story. You should read it sometime. Uh, in this story, Elisha is taking a stroll. He's out for a walk. There are some dudes who make fun of him for being bald. They call him bald head, which like, think of a better diss, but they call him bald head. Elisha turns around and calls a curse down on him. And the second he does it, a bear comes out of the woods and wrecks these dudes. It's awesome <laughs> and disturbing. Uh, that's why I'll tease Jim about being bald, but I'll never tease him in the woods. <laughs> I'll be careful there. <laughs> but, but I want you to picture this moment right now from Naaman's point of view, okay? Naaman pulls up in style, right? He's got his chariots, he's got servants and attendants, and he pulls up in style to Elisha's house. He knocks, but Elisha won't even leave the house. You won't even step out for a handshake. Instead, Elisha sends one of his lackeys to go talk to Naaman. Naaman, like one of the most famous people on earth during his era and during his time. And then on top of that, to like make matters worse, like not only will Elisha not come talk to him, but his lackey goes and tells him, he goes, hey, the secret after all of your traveling, like the secret key to being healed is to take a bath. And that's it. And it's too much for Naaman. Naaman's pride is wounded. And his reputation feels smeared. And his ego is like disintegrating. And so he gets furious. And in the next few, few verses, he starts storming off. And he's ranting and raving to his servants. And, and to kind of summarize what he's saying, he's basically going, hey, I thought at the very least, Elisha would walk out of his house to come and say hello to me. And then on top of that, I figured he'd do something crazy. Something, he'd have a magic wand or something. And he'd cure my leprosy in the name of his God. Instead, he told me to take a bath. Like, does this guy think I'm stupid? He goes, if B.O. caused leprosy, I wouldn't have gotten it in the first place. He's like, I take baths. And basically, Naaman is like, this prophet is a manipulative wild card who's trying to humiliate me. And then he storms off. Thankfully, though, Naaman's servants, they catch up with him, and they try talking some sense into him. Here's what happens. Naaman's servants went to him and said, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, like something that would make you look great, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? See, what's happening is that Naaman's servants know that Naaman is suffering from wounded pride. And so they just call him out on it. They're like, Naaman, dude, come off your high horse, man. Like, if that prophet told you to do something that would make you look awesome, you'd have done it in a heartbeat. Like, if that, if that prophet told you to go conquer more territory, you would have done it. If the prophet told you to pay him a bunch of money, you're rich, you would have done it. That would have made you look really awesome. But instead, when he tells you to get in a dirty river and take a bath, you're suddenly above that. And this is important for us today, so catch this. They basically tell Naaman, you are passing up your only opportunity to be healed just because you're too prideful to just humble yourself. These guys got cojones. <laughs> and what's cool is that it works. 
they, they really do talk some sense into Naaman. And so Naaman makes a choice. And his choice is to swallow his pride and humble himself. And so there he is, picture it. Naaman is there in the one nation that he's too weak to conquer, taking advice from a prophet who was too busy to come out and see him. And he's about to walk into the dirtiest river in town to take a bath like a common beggar. And then this happens. So he went down and he dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, just like the man of God told him to do. And when he did that, his flesh was restored and it became clean like that of a young boy. Listen, the minute that Naaman quit worrying what other people are gonna think about him and he quit worrying about his social status and the respect that he feels like he earned and he quit worrying about his ego, the minute that Naaman chose to swallow his pride and humble himself, he was healed. And not only was his body healed, but his soul was healed too. Look at, look at the next verse. It says, then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God and he stood before Elisha and he said, now I know that there is no God in all the world except here in Israel. Not only is Naaman's body healed, but his soul is healed too. And from that moment on, Naaman becomes a follower of the God of Israel in a foreign nation. Now, what is that ancient history moment have to say to us living in 2022? Well, here's the thing I think we need to catch. It's this, all of that transformation and all of that healing in Naaman's life began in a very specific way. It began when Naaman became so desperate for healing that he finally chose to swallow his pride and humble himself before God. And that is where every single step of faith begins. Whether it is your very first step of faith and you're just now starting to believe in Jesus or if you've believed in him for decades but the relationship feels stale and you want something deeper, every single step of faith begins in the same place which is humility because healing begins with humility. And so if you wanna take a step of faith and if you're serious about that, you have to begin asking yourself a question, like right now, as I start to tell us our second story. You have to begin asking yourself, am I passing up an opportunity to be healed just because I'm too prideful to humble myself? Start asking yourself that now. All right, that's Naaman's story, but Naaman's story is, is hitting really close to home for me because I'm learning a similar lesson right now. And so, the second story I wanna tell you is a story from my life. All right, I am one of those people who I have wrestled and fought with God since the moment I understood that there was a potential God. I did it from just day one. I've always been like that. I used to fight against God for years and years, and I can see now, looking in the rearview mirror, it was just because of pride. It's like, I wanna be the controller of my own destiny. And the most of all, I just thought I was too smart and too postmodern and too refined for what I believed to be at the time, the intellectual crutch of needing a God. I thought God and Jesus were fairy tales that humanity invented because they were, you know, they were too weak to handle the fact that we're all gonna die one day. As you can see, when people wanted to talk about faith with me, I was a real peach to be around. So. I was arrogant, I was argumentative, I was bullheaded, I was pretty relentless, but at the same time, I was always intellectually pure about the thing. 
And what I mean by that is it's one of my pet peeves when people get really vocal about something or they take a stance on something, but they haven't done any of their homework. So they can't like back up or articulate their own argument. That still drives me nuts. And, and so for years, I did what I called research because I wanted to prove that Jesus was a hoax. And then even more important than that, and looking back now, I guess it's because I've always been like a teacher and an evangelist at heart, but I felt like I needed to prove that so that I could save my family from believing in a bunch of spiritual BS. And instead what happened, after years of research, is that God broke me. I will never stop thanking him for breaking me. He eventually just like humbled me to this place where I couldn't deny him anymore. And so about 13-ish years ago, I sat in Cannon Mine Coffee, which is just right up the road here from our Lafayette campus. And I sat in there and I totally abandoned my life to Jesus. And I prayed for the first time in a really long time. And I just said, Jesus, like I have all of these questions about you that I don't think I'll ever get answered. But even though I can't totally understand and explain you, I somehow just like believe in you and I trust you. And I'm tired of fighting against you. And then I made a bargain with him. And since then, he has been absolutely faithful to his end of the bargain, even when I've been unfaithful to my end of the bargain. The bargain was I told him, I was like, Jesus, if you can fix me, I will go wherever you want me to go and I will do whatever you want me to do. Like, you can do anything you want with my life as long as you please just start healing me. And since that moment, for the last 13 years, my life has been a whirlwind of deeply rooted spiritual healing. Has my life been perfect since then? No. Now, anyone who knows me, you know that the, the last 13 years of my life, the last 13 years of my story has also included addiction and self-hatred and self-harm and depression. But at the same time, looking in the rearview mirror of my life, I would never in a million years characterize my life as a story of addiction and self-hatred and depression. I would characterize my story as one of healing. It's been the overwhelming theme of my life for the last decade and a half. Am I there yet? Absolutely not. Those of you who know me are like, no, no, you're not there yet. <laughs> Am I on my way? You better believe it. I'm just one more person among millions of Christians throughout history who can tell you genuinely from my heart, hell is something I have experienced on earth until I humbled myself before Jesus. And ever since that moment, Jesus has been literally loving the hell out of my life. And if you're in here and you're like, yeah, maybe for you, but not for me, all that clapping is just proof that he's done that for thousands of other people in this room. It's real. But because God loves me, he continues to humble me and he continues to teach me new things. And, and during my two-month sabbatical, which I just got back from, he began revealing a new part of my life that he wants to heal. And it happened during a, a solitude retreat that I took in the middle of December. I wanna tell you about it. All right, so I, I disappear up to a cabin in the woods for two nights and three days. It's just me and Jesus. And honestly, it mostly went like every other solitude retreat I've ever been on in my life, which means I sat in silence and I felt nothing other than the sensation that I'm wasting all of my time. <laughs> uh, 
Just because I'm a pastor, I do not have Jesus on speed dial. Um, and so day one, nothing. Day two, nothing. Day three, I wake up, it's a half day, and I just decide I'm gonna start reading something. All right, because I'm tired of sitting there in silence, bored out of my mind. And I brought this little book with me. It's, it's little. You could read it in like 30 minutes. It's called With Open Hands. And it's a book about prayer written by one of my favorite Christian authors, Henry Nowen. And I had never read it before. And so I crack it open. And in the first chapter, Henry Nowen starts explaining like why he gave his book the title With Open Hands. And he explains that there are areas of our lives where we have just clenched our fists around these parts of our lives. We want to keep control of these areas, and we're too scared to let them go. This might be our careers, our bank accounts, our, our sexuality. This might be the respect that we feel like we've earned, or our anger, or our hatred, you name it. There are just certain areas of our lives that we, we just we don't want to let go of them. It's like we're telling God, you can have all of my life except for this one part over here. And then now one explains that you can't really truly begin praying until you unclench your fists and you tell God, I'm scared and I don't know what you're gonna do with it, but yes, I, I'll, I'll trust you with even this part of my life that I've been keeping from you. And honestly, I'm sitting there and I'm reading it and I'm just kind of going like, oh yeah, it's a really good point. Like I like the way that he's explaining this and I'm gonna file this away in the back of my mind. I could teach on that one day, which is funny because that's what I'm doing right now. Um, but in the moment on the mountain, I'm just kind of reading it from this cold, distant place. Like as a teacher, kind of like looking for things to teach about. But then the chapter ends with a written prayer that you can pray to God. And I decide to do that. And so there I am, alone in the woods, and the very first time I have spoken out loud in three days, it is this prayer, which goes like this. Dear God, I am so afraid to open my clenched fists. Who will I be when I have nothing left to hold on to? And who will I be when I stand before you with empty hands? God, please help me to gradually open my hands and to discover that I am not what I own, but what you want to give me. And what you want to give me is love, unconditional, everlasting love. Amen. And I pray that out loud. I'm sitting there and I'm praying it out loud and God absolutely breaks me in half again. I did not hear an audible voice. A lot, of, a lot of you know what I'm talking about. It's more just like this foreign thought entered into my head. It's like this thought that I'm not wise or discerning enough on my own power to have thought of. And, and, and the thought that he gave me, what he started to teach me, was that ever since I was a little kid, I mean really little, I can remember thinking this when I'm like seven or eight, ever since I was a little kid, I've been obsessed and I've always wanted to, quote, do something important, always, I'm a musician, and so it used to be music. It's like, I'm gonna make important music. And then I went off to college, and I started studying English, and it's like, I'm gonna be a writer, and I'm gonna write something important. And then God turned my life around, and I became a pastor, and it's like, I'm gonna do important ministry. And at the core of that passion, I believe that that is honorable. Right? There's nothing wrong with wanting to do something of lasting value with your life. But on the mountain that day, what God revealed to me was that somewhere over the course of the last few years, I had taken the idea of doing something important 
And with time, I had distorted that into the idea of being viewed as someone important. And the truth is that doing something important and being like seeking to be viewed as someone important, these two things are in direct opposition to one another within the kingdom of God. And I prayed that, that prayer, and it was like God started to bring this truth about myself into focus, right? And it's like, it's like I had been staring at a foggy mirror, and then he wiped it clean for me, and I can see who I really am, and I don't like what I'm seeing, and it hurt because it wounded my pride. I don't, I don't know who I am. If I'm not the guy who's trying to do something important all the time, that's been 30 years of my life. But even though it hurt, at the same time, it, like, it felt so loving of God to reveal it to me. It didn't feel like he was mad or angry. It just felt like he's going, hey, Ben, I love you. And so I have some hard truth I gotta tell you because you cannot keep living this way. And it was like he told me, hey, Ben, this is the leprosy in your life. This constant drive, this constant perfectionism, this need to prove yourself and to be viewed as someone important, Ben is gonna eat away at your soul until it ruins you. And I start, sorry, I start like hearing the words of Jesus in my head back when he said this. He goes, if anyone would come after me, if you want to follow me, you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If you want to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, you are going to lose your life. But whoever loses his life for me, whoever humbles himself before me and gives me the parts of his life that he wants to control, you're gonna find your life. You're gonna find your real life. And God was revealing to me that even though I've always considered myself humble, more often I'm honestly just insecure. And those things look so similar, but they're worlds apart. And that's because humility is fearing God. That means you only care what God thinks, and so you only care to please God. And on the other hand, insecurity is fearing people, right? You only care what other people think, and so all you do is seek to people please. And insecurity makes humility impossible because you're always thinking about yourself and what other people think of you. And God taught me that even though I never intended to do this, I was finding a lot of my worth and value, maybe even all of it, in doing exactly what I'm doing right now. Because standing on a stage and teaching to thousands of people is a very quick fix for an insecure person who needs to feel important. And right now, there's honestly, there's like this sliver of me that's embarrassed to admit that to you. Honestly, most of me is just relieved to confess that to you. I, I had started down a path that I know ends in humiliation and destruction. I have seen it ruin countless pastors all over the world. I was looking for my job and the stage to define who I am, and that would have eaten away at my life until it ruined me. And I confess that to you. I'm asking you to forgive me for that. But... <clears throat> At the same time, what's cool is that rather than humiliate me, God chose to humble me because he's really good. And I drove, 
I drove down that mountain feeling washed clean. And I drove down that mountain praying for the first time in 13 years, again, God, you can do anything you want to with my life. If you keep revealing these diseases in my heart and you keep healing me from them. And it's been cool because the last two times that I've taught since being back from sabbatical, I can genuinely tell you, I don't need this like I used to. And, and I hope you hear the heart <laughs> behind what I'm about to say, okay? But in a healthy way, I don't care what you think right now. <laughs> it, <laughs> Let me explain. Uh, I still love you. I still worked my butt off to study and prepare for this thing. I still want it to be relatable. I still want you to feel welcomed here. But like right now, in this moment, with my words, I am seeking to please my Father God and Him alone. And you can just kind of take it or leave it. All right? <clears throat> You're giving me lots of opportunities to take drinks. <laughs> You can take it or leave it, but if you want to take it, here's the lesson behind Naaman's story, or at least the lesson I'm learning in my life right now. It is that a step of faith always begins with choosing humility, and that is because healing always begins with humility. Naaman had to let go of his fame and respect and his ego. That was his real disease. And he had to let go of that to humble himself and be healed. And I have to continue letting go of the seductive power and the seductive desire to find all of my worth and value in my job and in doing something important. That's my real disease. And I've gotta let go of it to humble myself and be healed. And so if you really wanna take a step of faith, and if you really mean that, the question is, what is it that you have clenched your fists around? What, what part of your life do you want total control over? What secret do you feel like you need to continue to keep? And what area of your dignity or value or pride are you just refusing to let go of? You have to ask yourself, am I passing up an opportunity to be healed just because I'm too prideful to humble myself? Because here's the truth, and I, my prayer is that you never have to learn this truth the hard way. Some of us have already learned it the hard way, but the truth is this. God wants you to grow in your faith because he wants to heal you, and so God's plan A is he commands you to humble yourself, but that's not the hard truth. That's the great truth. That is a command that comes to us with a promise. And the promise is this. We're told to humble ourselves before the Lord. And if we do that, he will lift you up. So that's good news. God commands you to humble yourself so that he can heal you. That's not the hard truth. The hard truth is that God has a plan B. Meaning, if you continue to fight against him, if you continue to try to heal and fix yourself on your own power so that you can get all the credit and the glory for it, if you refuse to humble yourself, he will move to plan B. And God's plan B is he will allow you to humiliate yourself. 
Eventually, if we just continue living in our own pride and living in our own ego and our idea of self-sustainability because we're men and men face problems face on and we do it by ourselves, if you continue living in that, then after giving you a thousand opportunities to humble yourself before him, God will eventually stop protecting you from the inevitable consequences of the way that you're living your life right now because maybe that will get your attention That is Romans 1. Go read it later. He will give you over to your own ways and your own desires and you will crash and burn and you will be humiliated. I don't know like what part of your life right now you're refusing to let go of. I'm not your Holy Spirit. My guess though is that for some of us, God is speaking up right now and he's telling you clearly, he's pointing to a part of your life and he's saying, give it to me. Humble yourself and give me that part of your life before it leads to your destruction. This part of your life is gonna eat away at your soul until it ruins you. Take that step of faith. Choose humility over humiliation. They are two totally different things and only one of them leads to life. Again, I don't know what what your thing is and what God's teaching you right now, but here are some examples Right, humility is going to find a marriage counselor, and humiliation is going to find a divorce lawyer. And don't don't freak out when, when I say that. Please listen to me while I explain myself. Okay? I know that there are certain situations, especially the ones where you're in danger, your divorce was freedom. All right? It wasn't humiliation. I'm not talking about those unique situations right now. Instead, I'm referring to the countless people who I've talked to who were humiliated to tell their friends and their family about their divorce because they know they could have saved their marriage if they had put the work in years ago. They were just too proud to do it because it takes humility to just admit that things aren't as good as they could be. And it, it takes humility to admit that you don't know how to fix this relationship. And it takes humility to go, you know what? Instead of me just winning every single argument, I actually wanna find common ground between me and my wife. And I just don't know how to do that. I need help with that. But if you can't humble yourself and just admit that you aren't necessarily Mr. Wonderful yourself, it is a matter of time. Another example, humility is confession. Humiliation is getting caught. It takes humility to come clean with your addiction or the secrets you've, you've kept. Trust me, I've been there. Like it wounds your pride to bring those secrets out into the open. And it takes humiliation to find accountability so that you can get clean. It takes humiliation to keep accountability after you get clean because everything in you wants to say, I'm past that now. I've moved on, I'm better than that now. You could choose to bring that hidden part of your life out into the open, like you could choose humility and be healed. Or you could wait for the inevitable and humiliating moment when you get caught. One more example, humility is allowing God to define you and humiliation is trying to define God. And here's what I mean by that. This is where I used to be back when I was constantly fighting against God. Right? I, I was trying to define God and explain him away. I wanted to outsmart him so that I could put him in a box labeled mythology. 
And even when I discovered, like in my research, that like, I think Jesus is actually pretty cool. And I really like a lot of the stuff that Jesus talks about. Like even in that moment, I felt like I couldn't like fully believe in him until I could fully understand and explain him. And some of us are there right now. I've been there too. We just feel too smart to believe in Jesus. But be honest with yourself. Like, do you really wanna place your faith in a God that you can completely define and make sense of? Really? Like, you don't want the God of the universe to contain a little bit of mystery, a little bit of mind-blowing paradox? I don't believe you. I used to say that, and now looking back, I realize it was pride. Because at the end of the day, like, if I can explain God, then I win. Right, like if I can fully explain and define and articulate God, then he's under my thumb now. And if he's under my thumb now, I am God now. But eventually he humbled me. And I just told him like, God, I cannot completely explain and, and, and define who you are, that's okay. Instead, could you please start explaining and defining me? And he has spent 13 years making pretty good sense out of myself. Listen, if that's you, and you're like, that's the last hurdle, and you're ready to just start putting your faith, your confidence, and your assurance in Jesus, then you're here on the right weekend. Because he, here at Lafayette, and at our Longmont, and at our West campuses, you can walk out those doors right when I say amen, and you can get baptized. And baptism is an outward symbol of an inward truth. In this case, the inward truth is that we believe meaning faith, not, we can, not I can explain or I can define, but instead I have confidence and assurance in the idea that Jesus died and was buried, that's the going underwater part, and that he was resurrected, that's the coming out of the water part, to cleanse me from my sins, that's why we use water, and to reconnect me in real relationship with my Father God. Baptism is our way of saying that we are done with the path of humiliation, and we are ready for the path of humility. It's your way of choosing humility over pride and choosing healing over destruction. And if you have got the itch to take that step of faith today, dude, send it. Go do it. But I didn't bring my bathing suit. I, we wouldn't baptize you in one. I'd be like, put your pants on. <laughs> Go do it. Take that step of faith. Go get soaked. Listen, if you feel like you have not taken a step of faith in a while, or you say stuff like, my relationship with Jesus just feels stale right now, or if you're so close to finally believing in him and putting your trust in him, but you feel stuck, I am telling you, the culprit is pride. And so you should ask yourself, am I passing up an opportunity to be healed just because I'm too prideful to humble myself? And listen, because I know this, because I have been in the seat countless times when this has happened to me. I know that for a lot of us, you are so close right now. You don't need to think about what your step of faith looks like. You know what it is. You know what you need to do. You're just trying to psych up the courage to do it because it's terrifying. You already know. You know, you know what you need to confess. You know what you need to tell your spouse or your friends and your family. It's just you're afraid you're gonna lose everything. Or, or you know that you need to go get baptized and go get soaked, but you're understandably, you're worried, you're scared that your friends and your family are gonna start looking at you differently or, or treating you differently because you're gonna be the weird religious dude. 
And we know that we need to unclench our fists and hand Jesus the things that we have been looking to for all of our worth and our value. But like me, it's like we're afraid that we won't know who we are anymore if we don't have those things. There's a lot of us in here. We already know what we need to do. I am just here to encourage you to send it. Take that step of faith. Here's the truth. You have no control over the fallout of doing the right thing. You only have control of choosing to do the right thing. And then you can place all of your confidence and assurance, your faith in the idea that Jesus will walk through that fallout with you and he won't let go of you and he won't abandon you. And so humble yourself before you end up getting humiliated. Here's what I'm gonna ask that you do. I'm gonna ask that you stand up right now. And then go ahead and close your eyes. I'm gonna pray uh, in a minute, but for anyone who's in this room and you feel so close, you know what you gotta do, you're just terrified. What I'm gonna do right now is I'm gonna pray that prayer from Henry Nowen that I read. I'm gonna pray that over you right now. And what I ask that you do, you can, you can do this and still stay kinda hidden right now, but what I'm gonna ask that you do is you clench your fists tight as you can by your sides. And as you clench your fists, just picture that part of your life that you are refusing to let go of. That secret that you feel like it is just too dangerous to tell anybody. That part of your life where you are looking to all of your, that find all of your worth and your value in it, like you don't know who you're gonna be if you let go of that thing. Clench your fists right now and think of that thing. And as I pray this prayer over you, make it your prayer. And then if you're looking for the courage to take a step of faith, then as a way of showing God that, as I pray this prayer, just slowly unclench your fists. So dear God, we are so afraid to open our clenched fists. Like who will we be when we have nothing left to hold on to? And who will we be when we stand before you with empty hands? God, please help us to gradually open our hands and discover that we are not what we own and we are not the secrets that we have kept from others and we are not the total sum of all of our sins and all of our mistakes and our baggage and our trauma. That's not who we are. Instead, we are what you wanna give us and what you wanna give us is love, unconditional love and everlasting love. Amen.